and sisters, welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Hopeless Romantic. I hope you guys are enjoying the second season of my podcast as I'm talking about my new book. Uh, and uh, leave a comment in the comment section to let me know what you guys think of these episodes so far. Today, we have a lot of things to cover, so let's get right to it. But if you've been in this, if you've heard the episodes before, you know what time it is. We got to kick it off in the right way. Let's gather our thoughts and our minds for prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Holy, holy, holy is your name, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for bringing us together. We ask that you open up our hearts and, and guide us and give us wisdom as we have these difficult conversations about our nation. We ask that you bring peace to the nation and, and, and give comfort to all the families of the fallen ones. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, in the intercession of the Virgin Mary, and that of the angels and the saints, we pray, amen. Once again, we are on the third episode of the podcast for the book, Hopeless Romantic. If you haven't gotten the book yet, make sure to get it on uh, Amazon. Uh, I also post um, some content regarding the book on Instagram. You can follow me on dmulina. Once again, thank you for all the patrons who've been supporting me. I'm not able to do this without your support. And honestly, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for your contribution. And if you, the listener, want to be a supporter... You can become a patron and support these uh, podcast missions by going to patreon.podbean.com forward slash Dawit Muluna. Like I said, we have a lot of stuff to cover. We have a lot of stuff to cover. So uh, let's get right to it, shouldn't we? Uh, last time I kind of uh, left you with my journey at Catholic University and and how I was introduced to Ethiopic studies and I was getting ready to you know, have all these kind of missions that I wanted to do to unify both the Ethiopic study scholars, if you will, and the Ethiopian Orthodox Father Church. And suddenly the conflict in Northern region kind of came up. And as I indicated, like honest to God, the truth is my first mission, when I thought about writing a book, my mission was to write a book to the youth and it was supposed to be a homily style book. Like think of it as a book of like a transcript of a sermon. So my idea when I first thought about Hopeless Romantic, of course I didn't come up with the title, but it was just like supposed to be like, you know, pick certain verses from the Bible and say, guys, let's unite. Let's be, you know, like forgive each other. Let's not be harsh, you know, and all this stuff. But as I indicated uh, in the previous podcast, I was preparing for this exam in the program that I was in for Ethiopic studies. And as I was reading all these like um, scholar, scholarly works, I thought it would be a great idea to include the historical part of Ethiopia. And the reason why I wanted to do this is because like... I was amazed at how much like Ethiopia had to had to offer right and like you know you grow up hearing this uh like rhetoric from your parents about how great Ethiopia is and and you know like yeah we're a great nation this then the third and I you know I think a lot of youth and a lot of young people they hear that and they think it's like make-believe so did I but here I was being faced with you know these articles really talking about 
Like, wow, this nation was pretty awesome. And I thought that element to the book was necessary because it would help, I thought, a lot of people realize, okay, this is what we are about to lose. Like, this is what's at stake here. You know, it would help a lot of people say, this is a nation worth fighting for. Not not through military means, but like, like we have to preserve it. You know what I mean? Like, this is a nation worth, like, preserving and and loving and and i don't know it was it was fascinating to me like you know you probably heard if you're following me on social media i know i know you've heard me talk about this but ethiopia was compared to the to the empire of rome i mean think about that like this african nation you know and throughout history like we were often you know ethiopia is depicted as this poor country who doesn't have any food doesn't have anything but here we are like in, in nearly 2,000 years ago, uh, considered to be one of the major empires in the world. Um, and, and contrary to modern-day belief, we had, we had wealth, we had gold, we traded ivory, silver, name it, we had it. We were a powerful nation. You know, one of the things that you hear in Ethiopia is like, you should be happy. Ethiopia has its own writing system. I'm like, all right, like big deal like i you know like why is that amazing but you have to understand the time period where ethiopians came up with their own script for writing we're talking about in the by the fourth century there are already inscriptions of ethiopic letters right fully developed and i talk about this in the second chapter of my book but compare that to arabic which is of course like throughout the world and like one of the main languages now but uh, before the advent of, of Islam, which is um, late 6th, early 7th century, like there were very few uh, writings done in Arabic. So like writing was like a new kind of idea at that time. It was like really, really new, groundbreaking type of research. It's kind of like the space race of that time. So, you know, that the idea of Ethiopia having its own NASA pr program is probably laughable right now. But back in the day, that's essentially what they were doing. So, you know, our parents were not making this up. It, it, the, the nation was really awesome. And I thought at this point I had to address it, which is, you know, we were a pretty awesome nation. That is Ethiopia. By the way, I, you know, <laughs> I have to address something that, you know, has been all, all over social media, and I've talked about this before, and I know some people are going to get mad at me, but there seems to be a confusion between Ethiopia, the nation, or I should say Aksum Empire as an empire, and the city of Aksum in Ethiopia. This has led some people to believe that the city of Aksum somehow belongs to, uh, or the, the Aksum Empire belongs to the people who are currently residing in the city of Aksum. But that's not how it works. That's like saying uh, Rome Empire belongs to the people residing in Rome, Italy. Rome, Italy is the city. Rome Empire is the empire that was huge. And you have to understand Ethiopia was also a name used to designate to the empire of Aksum. And this is not something I'm making up. You could go and, and look at it yourself. Uh, you know, um, but, but even before that, like, uh, first we have to you know, agree on facts, right? You're entitled to your opinion, but not your own facts. 
And you don't find any findings of like ethnic groups, the present day ethnic groups like Tigray, Amhara, Oromo before the turn of the second century. There's no writings of it. There's no mentions of it. We don't read anything about the so-called Amhara tribe, the so-called Tigray tribe before uh, the, the turn of the second. So around like uh, 1000 AD is when we, we started to hear this. But as far as Aksum Empire, um, there's this, uh, there was this monument known as, well, they, they named it Monumentum Adeltenium, or you, it's also called the Throne of Adulis. And although this throne doesn't exist today, there was a historian named Cosmos Indicopolistus who made, a, like, who drew this um, throne. And, 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 and we have his writings. So we know of his existence because of his writings. And if you go and see the image of the throne, you can clearly see that in Greek inscriptions of Ethiopes while describing the kingdom of Aksum. What this shows you is the term Ethiopia was being used to designate or was designated as a name for the kingdom of Aksum. So that region was both known as the kingdom of Aksum and Ethiopia. So again, Ethiopia is is the name of, you know, I talk about this, of the black people, the region for black folks. So we don't need to fight about the legacy of Aksum Empire, right? Uh, it belongs to all of us. Like So this idea of one group saying, no, it just belongs to us, we're the only ones who could claim it, is really misunderstanding history and, and at best, if not purposefully trying to bamboozle people but anyway so uh i was learning all this stuff that's what i'm trying to get at but as i was reading these articles i couldn't help but notice that like i said, talked about last week a lot of these authors especially that that were writing in the 20s and 30s they were italian authors and like like i didn't know why uh, but then I found out these were like fascists again. Something I, I I mentioned last time, and but like this fascinated me. Why are fascist Italians in the 20s and 30s publishing articles about Ethiopia? And more importantly, what am I reading about them now as part of my program in Ethiopian studies? Like that's a problem, right? Like why am I reading the writings of fascists? as the principal idea of methodology for how to study Ethiopian studies. The one thing that's perhaps the most frustrating thing about writing this book is getting people to care about this research and this finding. Like I, you know, I've been on several podcasts. I've been on several like, uh, IG lives and, and, and what is it? The Twitter spaces or whatever they're called. And I go here and I'm so passionate and I tell people like, do you know that our history is written by fascist Italians? And people respond back like, oh, wow, yeah, that's crazy. Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, these white folks be crazy, though. And I'm like, oh, like, I think you missed it. Like, I, you know, I wouldn't spend all this energy, all this money, all these resources on trying to give to the community, like tell you that like racists wrote history. Right. That's not fascinating. But it's the idea that the methodology of the fascists is being used by modern day historians to teach about Ethiopian history. That's scary. 
that's something that is really, really scary, and that is not common in other uh, uh, fields. I'll give you an, a, a, like a, a, an analogy that I hope kind of makes sense. Um, imagine like uh, if a bunch of people went and, and they started looking at how masters were able to effectively uh, 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 like grow crop in their plantations by subjugating slaves to very cruel measures. So imagine like historians, they studied what masters were doing to their slaves and these like methodologies that the masters were using to kind of um, force the slaves to do work became the foundation or the foundational principles for how to run a business for modern day uh, companies. And if when you go to the MBA programs, they would teach uh, managers like future managers for how to treat their employees exactly like how masters treated their slaves in order to produce the um, the greatest amount of work. Wouldn't there be an uproar? Like, isn't that like, who would agree with that? Like in today's society, maybe it happened in the twenties. I don't know. But like in today's society, who would be okay with that mindset? Like studying the, the work of the master and not for the purpose, like it's important to study what the masters did to the slaves for the sake of making sure we don't repeat that and we could criticize what they did. But to study that methodology and and to praise the methodology and then and then up like teach it to students today so they could continue that same mindset. I mean, that's crazy. But that's essentially what's going on with with Ethiopian studies is these fascists came to Ethiopia for one purpose and one purpose only, to colonize Ethiopia. So their writings were geared to um, an audience which could help them facilitate this colonization process. And this became published in universities. So that's not the story that I want to tell, though. That's unfortunate, but that's history. That's in the past. So any historian... You know, historians will be interested in it. But why you should care today is because those writings are now being taken by present day scholars and being studied and, and, and taken as the voice of authority on Ethiopian history. I've said this before and I'll say it again. In Ethiopia right now, there is no undergraduate history department. Like if you are in Ethiopia, like you want to go to the history department, there is nothing that you can do. Like, you can't study history. But there is something called the philology department. And the first thing I say when I say philology department, people say, do you mean philosophy? And I'm like, no, I mean philology. Philology is a fancy word to say the study of languages. But that's just something like a labeling, a marketing scheme. Because the philology department, the only thing they study is Giz. In reality, that has now replaced the history department in Ethiopia, right? So you're like, okay, well, they shut down the history department and started this thing that's a history department but labeled as something else. Why do that? Well, this philology department was instituted by a, an Italian named Paolo Marassini, who himself was taught by a fascist named uh, uh, Cerulli, Enrico Cerulli. So 
the only place that's the authoritative source for history in Ethiopia is the philology department that was founded by an Italian. That's why you should care. Your history, your Ethiopian, keep in mind right now, the reason why so many people are fighting, the reason why people are going in, in, into war is about history. People can't agree on what the, the factual history is. So people are turning to historians to help them uh, agree. This is why like the leading political figures often have a PhD attached to their name because they claim to be these historians that have the actual truth behind the historical events of what happened. Well, today, those so-called elites historians are coming out of programs known as the philology department that are being trained by the Westerners, mainly Italian uh, uh, authors. This is a problem. This is why we should care. There should be an uproar. It is shocking. It is shocking. But unfortunately, I'm not sure how many people are understanding. I'll give you one other example. Hopefully, this really kind of uh, uh, sinks in. Imagine that like, you take the writings of Hitler and you use it in present-day history classes as the authoritative source for Jewish history. And you teach young Jewish like students that look, this is your history. And then like what Hitler wrote and you're told that Hitler was really a scholar of, 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 uh, Jewish history. I mean, who would be okay with that mindset? No, like the rest of the world would not be okay with it. But of course for Africa, it seems like it doesn't matter. Needless to say, when I was reading this and I was figuring this out for myself, I had a mental breakdown. Like, I'm not just saying like, oh, no, like it was bad or whatever. I literally had a mental breakdown. I was uh, diagnosed, like clinically diagnosed with uh, anxiety. Um, I was seeing a therapist. I wasn't okay. I couldn't focus. I couldn't sleep. Um, there, there were some chapters that I was writing. I remember I, I literally would break down and cry. Just like, like it was not an easy process because you're witnessing your history being stolen from you. And what's more frustrating, even now at this moment, as I'm sitting down making this podcast is trying to get people to care. Like I've talked this, I've talked about this to family members, friends. Uh, like I said, you know, I've been on social media and the number one response I get is, wow, that's sad. And that's it. Nobody really understands, like, how big of a problem this is. And I thought, like, as I was writing this book, there would be, like, a bigger uproar. People often ask me, so what do you think we should do? Well, number one, the history department in Ethiopia needs to be revived. That's where we should focus on. Like, I, you know, I'm not even going to say let's shut down the philology department that like let them do whatever they're going to do. But for us, if you really want to fund something, let's fund the history department in Ethiopia and really talk to the historians there to see how we can continue this program in Ethiopia. That's something that we should work on. But unfortunately, people have this short term, you know, memory like like they get mad for the time being. And they're like, wow, how could this happen to us? And then immediately we forget about it.
So needless to say, once I found this out, I realized I had to write a different type of book. I was no longer going to be a sermon. I was no longer going to be like, look, this is the historical aspect of Ethiopia. But it was going to be my attempt to show the youth or the readers, whoever they were, that our history has in in effect been stolen. And this is not a historical event. It's a present day process. I'll repeat that. The fact that our history is stolen is not a previous event. It's a present day process. So it's happening. Our history is being stolen even as we speak. It's still going on. In terms of solutions, I'll get to that uh, another day. But this is just to tell you guys like the mindset that I was in to write this book and why I was so emotional and why it's, it hurt, it cut deep, it cut deep. Um, but even though I was hurt, uh, I decided to to name the book Hopeless Romantic. And the reason why I did that, and a lot of people have come to me, especially people who live outside of the, the Western region and said, what does hopeless mean, right? Like, tasfa yata. Like, that's how they would translate it. Someone without hope. So why would you ever label a book hopeless? Or man, it should be hopeful, hopeful. Well, you know, if you perhaps, uh, and this is not me making fun of you, but if you honestly do not, uh, you don't have a command of the English language or the English, like the American culture, hopeless romantic is a stock phrase. Like, if you grow up in, a, in America, it's not really like a weird term. Um I just mean somebody like like very a romantic person, but someone even in America that grew up in America w- was trying to have like a linguistic debate with me, and they they were like, no 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 no, but the word says hopeless. So even if you grow up in America, it's it's still a bad thing. That means you don't have hope for romance. Well, think about the context, right? Because if you are a hopeless romantic, that means you're. Uh, well, rather, if you are a hopeful romantic, that means you're like everyone else. That means like, okay, like when everyone is looking at you, they're like, oh, yeah, he has hope. This person has hope. He'll find someone, right? But if you're someone who never gives up on love to the point that others just can't understand what you do, like, you know, others will look at you like, just give up. Like, th- what? Like, that kind of love does not exist. Like, what are you talking about? Like, your idea of a romance doesn't exist. And people will say, oh, he's hopeless. You know, you can't help him. His idea of romance is that he's hopeless. Hence the term hopeless romantic. Um, therefore, it's a term that's desc- that, that is to describe someone whom people view as being beyond help. Right. So uh, needless to say, I named the book Hopeless Romantic. Um, because when it comes to Ethiopia, so of course, uh, you know, I, I wrote this book in, in a metaphor and, and, you know, if you've heard something about the book, you, you probably know by now, but, uh, in the book I say, you know, I want to find my wife, I'm ready to settle down and, you know, I approach it like a love story. And this is a metaphor for my true love, which is Ethiopia. So when it comes to Ethiopia, I'm saying despite the many problems we were facing, of course, at the time, it's the conflict in northern Ethiopia. I still have hope that there are better days ahead. And people tell me that I'm crazy. Well, call me a hopeless romantic. And like I said, you know, me being a student of Kenny, 
I wanted to like use something people can relate with. So I, again, I'm using the love that exists between a husband and a wife. And as you keep reading, you learn that I, I'm, I'm in love with Ethiopia, right? Just like I want to be one day in love with my wife. Now, I hope the metaphor is not lost to the reader or to the listener. Like love is a virtue we can all relate with. It doesn't matter. I'm like right now in YOTC, Young Orthodox Auto Christians, the youth group that I'm a part of, we're, uh, we're learning, um, I'm giving a course on uh, love, essentially. We titled it God's Love Languages. But one of the things that, you know, I mentioned on there is, like, it doesn't matter your race, your background, your ethnicity, wh- whatever it is, you know what love is. And we all want it. It's, it's one thing that can unite us. Um, and because, you know... I'm using love that exists between the husband and the wife, and it enables me to talk about controversial periods in the history in a safe manner. So the subtitle is The Untold History, because I feel like a lot of times even people who love Ethiopia, they'll talk about, you know, the positive aspects of Ethiopia. Ethiopia is amazing. Ethiopia is great. And they kind of, like, forget to talk about, you know, there were some conflicts in, in, in the history. There were some conflicts some not good parts. So, but this enables me to be like, well, guys, like, let's just be honest. Like, (laughs) let's have an honest conversation. There were some not so good parts, right? So, uh, so this, so I decided to, um, this metaphor allows me to talk about these things in a way that is not offensive to one group or another. The other part of the book um, that did not get a lot of attention, and I thought it would be like a hit, was like the conclusion section of the book is a fable of of a, a talking uh, mice. But I, you know, I thought like a lot of people would enjoy it, and I I really put this is like not a genre I'm comfortable writing with. Um, but I thought it was going to be effective. Unfortunately, I don't think it got, it got the attention that it deserved. But uh, so I, I know like most of us have, you know, we grew up hearing about fables. And, and for me, like I took a particular interest when it comes to uh, fables when I was introduced to the Arabic version of Kalila Wadimna. And, and if you're not familiar with what that is, these are essentially short stories often having animals who are personified. And they're like the main characters. And these animals encounter real life problems that deal with like real life issues. So these uh, Kalila Wadimna, these short stories were written at a time like uh, a long time ago to educate princesses and princesses. Uh, and, and they but like they were meant to teach them moral like teachings, but they became widely popular and circulated, especially in the Middle East. Now, if you've taken particular attention to my sermons, I often love to use these uh, type of stories while I approach it. And you will often hear me like when I'm about to use a fable or a parable, I I would start like with in a land far, far away where anything is possible. And then I'll introduce the animal, right? Like there was once a mouse, there was once a lion, a rabbit or whatever it is. And, And I've noticed like it's very effective. It's very effective because... Like, as the reader, you get to take one step back and visualize how another society 
um, these characters can handle the same problem you're dealing with. So, it, you know, it's not like I'm not criticizing the reader. I'm not criticizing your society. I'm just showing you like th like a mirror. This is how we're acting like in our society. So it enables you to be a fair judge of not just the actors you're reading about, but also of your life. Um, so, you know, with no training of writing fables, I attempted to come up with one of my own version titled The Tale of Sammy's at the end of the book. Um, and maybe, you know, if you're reading the, the, the book Hopeless Romantic and you, you find it a little too technical, you can easily scroll in, in the back and read the tell, tell Sammy. It might be something you might enjoy. And I don't want to ruin the story for you just yet, but I will get to it when I get to that part of the podcast. So make sure to get the book. I read it now before, you know, uh, the all the good aspects are, are ruined for you. So uh, all this to say that the, 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 the book included all these elements into one. So the idea of a metaphor, uh, talking about history, uh, letting people know, look, Ethiopia was this great nation and, and we should really know what we are fighting for. This is a, a nation worth uh, preserving. And also, you know, highlighting on, on how our history was taken away from us. Um, so, like, all these amalgamation into, into one book, Hopeless Romantic, it was a huge project to undertake. Maybe I did too much. I don't know. Uh, but this is honestly, uh, I've never focused this much. I've never worked this hard uh, to produce a project. I did it. Um, I don't know how many people learned from it, but, uh, you know, the, the, we, we'll see. The future will tell us. The future will tell us. With that being said, I hope you guys enjoyed the, the podcast. Make sure to leave a comment in the comment section. Make sure to buy the book. This podcast will be so much more effective if you can buy the book and follow along. Uh, follow me on Instagram, uh, uh, dmulino, or on Twitter. I'm also on Twitter. And if you want to be a supporter on a page, Patreon, visit patreon.podbean.com forward slash David Mulina. And I'll see you guys next week. Have a good day. <laughs> Thank you.